God's Word, the book of Revelation, chapter 5. We're going to go back just, well, a bit towards the beginning of the book in which I will focus my attention not so much on the exegetical significance of that within the larger text of Revelation, but how it affects our lives and how we are to see ourselves as those who live not in a kingdom of darkness, not in a world that belongs to the devil, but under the rightful rule of Christ in a world that belongs to him, and he has promised it to us as our inheritance. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. Now when he, that is the lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, For you are slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come into your house again today. For you have here something in store for us that we cannot get anywhere else. We thank you for your presence, your glorious and gracious condescension for visions and words that speak louder than our fears, our doubts, our unbelief, and you by your Spirit. Break through these cold hearts and you make them warm and alive. Would that not a man or woman and child here this morning leave without having been transformed unto and after the image of the one who even now sits upon the throne, Christ our Lord That you would make of us not only willing servants, but servants with eyes that see things as they truly are. 
as you have told us, that we would be people of the word, all for crown and the glorious name of Christ and the covenant you have established with us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This is the second of what might be referred to as soapbox sermons. I get it. A sermons that I think may and ought prove helpful to us as we endeavor to live in the world that God has made. Last week, I covered what it means to live in light of the glorious resurrection of Christ and the success of the kingdom that will come over time to those who bear faithfully the name, the banner of Christ over all. There is another point that I wish to make as it relates to what we find in the book of Revelation, and that is the clarity with regards to what God is doing on earth in relationship to the coronation of Jesus Christ. There is a great difference between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God because Christ has come, because Christ has died, was buried, and was raised, and even now has ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We are to live in light of the coronation of Christ And in these ways, I think there is clarity, and that clarity shapes how we live. There's actually four points. I started with eight. (laughs) I condensed and moved these things around. Four, clarity regarding the membership of the body of Christ. That is, who is in it? Clarity regarding the membership of the body of Christ. Second, clarity regarding the mission and work of the church. What is our role as his chosen people? And then three, clarity regarding plotting faithfulness and vocation. And then fourth, clarity regarding the worship of the saints of God. Let's look at the first point. Clarity regarding the membership of the body of Christ. Now, Revelation 5, verses 1 through 10, and really it moves, it's really the whole of the book. What is the consequence of Christ taking the throne? What is the significance of it? Is there a significance of it? And how do we live in light of that significance? Well, one of the things that we see in light of Christ's coming, hence clarity, what we see is that those who were once far off have now been brought near. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11, Paul is writing to Gentiles who were once not part of the visible church except in very small numbers. This is what he says. Therefore, remember that you, Ephesian Gentiles, once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What is Paul saying? With the coming of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the church is much bigger than it once was. 
And it includes, as was the design of God all along, right? He did not mess up with Israel. He did not restart the covenant of works and Moses. It is one covenant of grace. And what he has done over time in terms of the history of redemption and the unfolding of it is to reveal in the coming of Christ in the flesh and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was that every tribe, tongue, and nation would be brought into the covenant people of God. So that when John sees in Revelation 7, 9, as I looked and therefore was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. He's not saying Jews in every tribe, people. He's talking about all kinds of people, Jew or Gentile. Black or white, rich or poor, male or female. Those whose primary identity is that they are the covenant people. They are royal priests in the household of God. And all of this, because Christ came and he gathered to himself. He died for on the cross. He provided sufficient atoning work for All kinds of people. You and me. It's glorious in terms of the scope of who belongs to the household of faith. And not only in terms of scope, a multitude. Billions upon billions. Maybe even into the trillions, depending on how long Christ tarries to come again. But in terms of the quality of time... We see that in the coming of Christ, a mystery revealed. There was a time in the Old Testament where Abraham and David and others, Samuel, the patriarchs, and all of the saints looked forward to that which they could not see clearly, yet through a glass darkly. They awaited, they peered into it as though it was a mystery. But now, in Christ Jesus, that mystery is revealed. That is the clarity that coronation brings. The final step of confirmation that Jesus is the Messiah requires that he rise to the throne of heaven and earth. If Christ is not on the throne, then he is not a sufficient, capable redeemer. That element of his mediatorial work is essential to its being carried out. And so, dear saints, it is not enough that we simply speak of Christ the suffering Messiah. We ought to also speak of him as no longer suffering, but having risen, raised, ascended, and now coronated. In fact, this was the sorrow or the event that transformed John's sorrow into laughter and rejoicing. There was a problem. And the problem that we see in Revelation 5 is that there is a decree or decrees that cannot be fulfilled by any other person than the second person of the Godhead. In fact, the Father himself gave it to the Son to do this. It did not belong to the Father. 
But the father rightly gave it to the son. And what I mean by it is the unfolding of the plan of the lordship of the lamb in light of his obedience. It belongs to Christ. And because Christ is raised, because Christ is ascended, because he was slain but is triumphant and is taking the throne, it is clear what is coming and what has happened and who is part of it and what we have seen. This is what clarity regarding the membership of the body of the Christ means. Second, there is clarity regarding the mission and work of the church. Jesus made it very clear. In Matthew chapter 28, he gave to the apostles a mission. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And this is how they are to make disciples. They go, they baptize, and they teach. The order of those things has a certain sacramental logic to it. You go, you mark out who belongs to the people of God, and then you raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is the Great Commission. And there are two very important components that are often not focused on as much as the meat in the middle is. Number one, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then second, the last part, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why do we often focus on the middle part? Because we love to focus on ourselves and what we can do. But the reason why we can go and make disciples is because the first part, the preface, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Christ is powerful, and then the prologue, I am with you. If Christ in his ascended power is not present with us, there is no baptizing and teaching. There is no discipleship making. So what are we? We are those who have been guaranteed success as harvest bringers, truth tellers, prayer offerers, soldiers in the army of the Lord, that what we do when we are faithful is to accomplish the will of God unto the salvation of the nations. Now you may say, where is that? And I say to you, it is all around you. You may say, in my lifetime? And I say to you, yes. And it may not be directly where you're working. Was Noah obeying God and bringing fulfillment to the work of Christ in revealing salvation? And when he began building, how many more people were with him in the boat than when he started? When he finished? None! And two of those were not even part of the family of God. If anything, the church shrunk. What is Christ showing us? That he is the one who brings increase. That the mechanism of salvation is not changed. But the thing that matters is whom God has chosen from before the foundations of the world were laid and all that you and I can do is not concern ourselves with who are the elect, because you will never know, but what? Am I faithful? 
to live in light of the word of God and to faithfully teach and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of Christ in both the way I live and what I say. The mission and the work of the church is unique now because in Christ's coming and in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we have been guaranteed that Satan is on the way out. And the works of darkness are on the way out. And demons are being cast out in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the thing that we are taking into the world to take dominion is word, prayer, and sacrament. Three simple elements. Have you seen how bloated and complicated the church has become, though? How will the nations come without a robust children's ministry? How will that happen? Well, you bring them to church with you, parents, and you let them hear the word of God. And I guarantee you this, your children are hearing more than you understand, and they're taking more from it than you realize. Otherwise, why are, why are we going to nursing homes? Think about that for a minute. We are commanded in Scripture to go to the widows and the orphans. I cut my teeth exhorting scriptural texts to a group of people that were largely sleeping. This is what happens when you go to a nursing home, right? You wheel them in. They can't even... You just, you just find them and wheel them in. If there is anything like going to the nations, and then you wheel them in, and then you start exhorting and exegeting the scripture, and not a single one of them... Is following, and that part of that is due to the fact that I, I really couldn't do much. I couldn't, as I say, preach your way out of a wet paper bag in the early days. But is God doing something there? Absolutely. How is he doing it? Because the Spirit says things and says them in such a way that go beyond human power and ingenuity. Because he is God and he will be heard. Because when God made all things, he made the world through the power of which person of the Godhead? The Holy Spirit. When God spoke by the Holy Spirit, mountains came. The universe came. Do you think, do you think that the Holy Spirit cannot move in our hearts? Absolutely. So as it relates to the clarity of the mission and the work of the church, our primary mission is to do what? Speak the word to as many people as possible. Are they listening? That's not my problem. I mean, I want you to listen. But I cannot make you believe these things. Yell as I might. <laughs> as earnestly as I may appeal. Christ is on the throne. And Christ is not impotent. The Father is not impotent. The Spirit is not impotent. And so we as members of one body join together in those places where the word is proclaimed. And what will the end of that be? Through word, prayer, and sacrament, the world will be filled with followers of Christ Jesus. And listen, 
There are times where I think, I don't think it's possible. But I'm always thinking, in this time frame, will I get to see it? Why is it not happening now? Why is it not happening in my time frame, my timetable? Christ doesn't work that way. Instead, as it relates to Christ's coronation, there is also clarity regarding plotting faithfulness, vocation, and the timing of all things. Let me begin by saying it this way. This is the third point. Clarity regarding plotting faithfulness and vocation. The ark wasn't built in a day. It took a hundred years. A hundred years. The great cathedrals of Europe... Hundreds of years. Rome, as they say, wasn't built in a day. Christendom, likewise. I remember when I first arrived at seminary, one of my professors, Doug Kelly, whom I often quote, now more than ever, which says something, I think, about just how right he has proven to be so often. is that every denomination ends up going liberal. And what he means by that is there's not a denomination that is not sprung up from the ground, one from another denomination, like our denomination, leaving the mainline Presbyterian church, that has not trended toward liberalism. Now he's saying that not to be discouraging, but to provide a warning. Be careful. Well, what kind of care are we to take? Well, there are two types of orthos, I'm going to get to the suffix in a second, that we need to be mindful of. The first is orthodoxy. We're Reformation Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Orthodox just means straight teaching, straight doctrine. It comes straight from the word. Do you know what's true of straight teaching? It's not fancy. Right, if you go to the orthopedic Surgeon, or if you go to an orthodontist, do you want them to get fancy with your teeth or your broken bone? No, you just want them to set the thing and put some braces on your mouth. It does not need to be fancy. But it's not the only ortho that we need to consider. We need to consider another, and that is called orthopraxy. And that is straight living, clear discipleship. Liberalism rears its ugly head When we go astray in both of those ways, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And here is how I feel mainly about liberalism arising from conservative Bible-believing churches. It is the reward for pragmatism. What I mean by that is this. Churches often go liberal. Good churches often go liberal because we are so easily inclined to change the method or the message in order to cater to worldly logic or worldly models for the sake of justifying our own existence for growth. We take Harvard business model practices and we say, we're going to overlay those things in the mission and work of the church. And we end up making decisions we ought not make that we're not authorized to make because this is why it'll work. People will come. People will come. 
But there's more to it than that. In fact, the way in which patience regarding the work of the kingdom is sown in our hearts is not what will we do that works, but what is the effect of the coronation of Christ at the throne of heaven and earth in regards to the mission and the work of the church. That when we do things the way he has said we ought to do them, what is the result? Success. But not in our timing. What is every pastor and what ought every pastor long for? More people this Sunday than last Sunday. I want the church to grow. But at what expense? Well, what happens when a pastor becomes fed up with his congregation? Because he doesn't see in them the things that he thinks should be there. Parents, what happens in your hearts when you don't see your children doing that? You do what? You exasperate them. You yell at them. You get a little bit, frankly, put off. And then you go, you know, maybe, maybe my time here is done. I should just go to another church. It'll be better there. No. <laughs> Everyone struggles with this reality. Do you think in year 78, when Noah was building the ark, he was thinking, what have I been doing these 78 years? Is it going to pay off? Do you, I absolutely believe that Noah struggled every day getting up going, i got to go get more gopher wood. <laughs> more gopher wood. So much gopher wood. Have you seen the replica? I've not been there. Do you think the mission of building the kingdom of Christ is not big? It's, it's huge. And does Christ not wish to call not just us Gastonians into the privilege of the work of building the church, but how about people in Afghanistan or countries that have not even been founded yet? Does he not wish to also give them a share in the building of the... Absolutely he does. What about your children? Do you wish to exclude them from building? Then don't be in a hurry. But be patient. Because every day is kingdom building day. Every day. There are no little people. There are no little tasks. There are only those with hard, impatient hearts to what Christ has ordained. So what are you to do? To devote yourself to work, to worship, to prayer? Can you think of a more mundane, simple exercise than prayer? Do you know why saints don't pray? Because they genuinely do not believe that it accomplishes anything. If you believed that prayer worked, you would pray. If you believe that prayer together is the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ work, you would pray together. In fact, this is the heart. This is the rub of the matter. We don't actually believe, A, that Christ is on the throne because things don't look like it. And the things, the instruments that Christ has given us to build his church are actually effective because we don't see the needle moving. Do you think Christ sees it? Is he not in charge? Is he not capable? 
And so we have to ask ourselves the question that Joshua put to the Israelites. Choose whom this day you will serve, but for me and my house we will serve the Lord. God calls us into his service as individuals, as families, as churches, as societies. Fathers and mothers in the church, you should strive to be pillars in your society. Pillars in the church. But how can you do that when you allow yourselves to be governed by the chaos of the moment? And who are the great chaos bringers? Children. I'm, it's just real, isn't it? But are not children, in a very real way, the most intimate, personal, and effective mission field that God has given to us? And if we cannot bring our children to church, how can we bring the lost? We have become a society of consumers. And we often treat church in the same way. Right? We go to the gumball machine of God's mercy. We take out our quarter. We put it in. We turn the thing. We take it. And we just chew on it. And every once in a while when we want a taste of the thing that comes out of the machine, we take our quarter, we put it in the machine, and we get a gumball again. This is not the way of Christ. In fact, what is the way of Christ? To own the store that the gumball machine is in. To think bigger. Now, to think bigger, what I mean isn't just now. It's got to come now. If it doesn't come now, I'm not going to do it. It means what? It means establish a godly line, a godly legacy. One generation after another, Deuteronomy chapter 6 kind of living. Profess these things to your Christians. And what does it say to the world? And what does it say to our children when we treat them as impediments for why we should not be in the house of God? Is this not often the case, fathers and mothers? I know you've been there. I've not had the privilege really of being there because I've always been in this pulpit. And I've gotten to watch my wife go through the turmoil and others helping us of raising my boys, frankly. And listen, they're fowlers. They come by it honest. They never stop this right here. And even recently, since the elders have been leading worship on Sunday nights, I go and sit down and I'm like, guys, no wonder your mom is going crazy. You're driving me crazy. I've only sat here like six times. My whole ministry, shh, shh, quiet, quiet. Just be quiet. But do you know what I'm thinking? That my children are an impediment to my worship. When they are the reason for my worship, I am worshiping and endeavoring to do it faithfully so that my children can look at me and they take the hymnal like I'm taking it and they're just copying. What are they copying? What are they seeing? What kind of burdens do you possess? And if I'll say this, 
During the time, three years ago, when there were governmental institutions that said, don't go to church, that's when Americans started going to church. Right? When they were told not to. But for thousands of years, the king of heaven and earth said, go to my house. And you know what Christians were not doing? Going to church. We cannot be people who are motivated by negative reasons because we're told not to. What is that actually evidence of? Not submission to authority. Well, what we call where I come from, cussedness. But cussedness towards Christ is not good. Humility and obedience. And so the question for us is, as it relates to the coronation of Christ, is the question that is presented by Psalm 84. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are still praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. Now, recently I had a conversation with a dear friend of mine as to why at Reformation OPC we have gone to, not gone to, we have, and we offer two services on Sunday. And he goes, what keeps you from having six services on Sunday? And I said, the word of God? Why are you having... 180 weekends. Why are you doing all these other things? Why did your youth group buy 10 Xboxes? Why did you do that? Right? As churches, we're always asking the question, why do this and not that? Why is the church open on Sunday? The doors, by and large, are unlocked. Right Right now, we don't want anybody to come in. We're in here. We're all facing in one direction except for me. And I'm unarmed. <laughs> why are we here? Why are we here? And why twice and not once? Well, for this very simple reason. God has great things in store for his people. I think I put it this way. There is something that God can prepare in his kitchen that we cannot prepare at home. And Sunday is your excuse to eat out. He gives you a justified, glorious reason to stop everything you're doing. And to be here. And if we are not clear as to how we are made worshipers, we will never be clear as it relates to our vocation. Because this is just part of what we do. And if we're not doing this well, I can guarantee you, you're not doing the other six days well. Because they feed off each other. They inform and are partnered together. So what is a Christian vocation? Well, it used to be, according to Rome... That if it was not a service towards the church directly, then it did not count. You had to be enrolled somehow with the church. And so women were told for many, many years, unless you were either a nun or devoted yourself to the church, your calling didn't count. And what the Reformation did for women is it restored to them the glory of faithful plotting work at home. Now, what is the great enemy of that today? It's feminism. What does feminism say? Your faithful plotting at home is not enough. If you're not earning a wage, you don't count. 
You know what's actually true about earning wages? They don't really count either. Right? In fact, even as it relates to my own calling and this position, the least essential part of this body is the man who occupies this role. You should see it that way. So that if something were to happen to me, God forbid I die, if I'm going to die, let it be in the middle of a sermon making this point. <laughs> Give me five minutes, Lord. Two minutes. It's not the man. It's the mission. And it's not just how gifted he might be in the eyes of the world. It's whether he stands up and delivers what is true. And I do this, right? This is the joke y'all make. You only work one day a week anyway. We all have something we do. Six days, seven days a week. Mothers, you pour out your life to your children. And every day you go to bed and you think, I am completely de-energized. I am void of enthusiasm. And when I look at what tomorrow is bringing, I see baskets of laundry where there should be no baskets of laundry. Or there are plates that were not done. Husbands, do the dishes if you can. Help. It's everyone's home. But these plotting things, this is the work of the kingdom. It doesn't have to be a churchy thing to be a kingdom-building thing. Dentistry, janitorial services, litigating cases in court, installing circuit breaker panels in a neighbor's basement, which I don't think you're supposed to do, (laughs) fixing thrusters on a space station. When they are done as unto the Lord and according to the pattern that he has designed, guess what that is? It's kingdom building. So what can we do? We can get to work. Because Christ is raised. Because Christ is seated at the throne. Our labors are used by him to build a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And then regarding worship, quickly. We worship the triune Lord, having seen his work of redemption accomplished. Now we are seeing it applied. Christ need not die or suffer again. When you confess your sins, do so with the confidence that in Christ Jesus your sins are forgiven. He is no longer in a place, and really never was, threatened by humiliation, though he was humiliated. Satan has been cast out, further banished into the abyss, and though there is a war, the war that the saints have been promised to engage in is a war that they will win. We are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we see our children baptized, when we see anyone baptized, what is Christ saying? That person belongs to me. We show our allegiance, our hope, our confidence in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why worship is central. It's because where we worship, when we worship, who we worship, and that we worship says something to the world. But when the world sees us acting the way they act on the day of Christ's resurrection, what are they thinking? What 
difference does the resurrection make? What's the point? I guess my call to Christians is to take Christ out of the mother-in-law suite and give him the place of honor that belongs to him. Right? Christ so often for us dwells in the hall closet. And we take him out when we need a dose of emotional stroking. And remember kids, see the, the sign on our wall? <laughs> our houses should be built upon Christ. He is the very foundation of all that we do. He brings clarity as it relates to our worship. And the witness that we provide to the world is what we believe is the center of all of our religion. It is the day of Christ's glory. The clarity that coronation brings here at the end is a clarity of mission as it relates to witnessing to the world who the great king is. Who calls the shots? Who has given us salvation? Who lies at the foundation of our homes? The name that our children grow up hearing. The sweet, glorious name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our lives are to be built upon this glorious reality. That Christ is raised, ascended, coronated, and coming again. So let us embrace these lives of glory, of sacrifice, of the mundane, of plodding faithfulness, of small vocations, and a lot of dirty diapers. Why? Because Christ is building a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he has called us to be part of it. Let's pray. Lord.